Awesome. Well, good morning. I'm gonna, I saw notice there's a lever here. I'm going to see if this comes up at all. It does not. Okay. Good to know. No, I'm fine with this. This is perfect. It's actually taller than I expected. When I was sitting over there, I was like, oh, maybe I'll need to raise it up, but this is actually a good height, so this is good. Well, good morning. My name is Warren. Uh, I help with college ministry here uh, with Harvest, uh, and it's so good to be with you guys here this morning. Um, Brian's out of town, and so he asked me to come step in, uh, and this I'm more comfortable with. I actually had a bad dream last night that I got here, and Rachel looked at me and was like, the drummer is not here. We need you to man the drum. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. She's like, it's easy. Just hit the drum on the beat. I'm like, I don't think I can do that. That's not in my wheelhouse. Um, So if Brian ever calls me, I'll happily step into here. Rachel, please don't ever call me. (laughs) Um, Well, before we get started, before we look at this, I'd really like to take uh, just a moment to pray um, just talk to God uh, to speak through scripture with us. So uh, if you don't mind, bowing your heads. Um, God, as we look at your scripture, as we look at what you have to say, um, just speak clearly. Um, God, you've designed us for joy and you've de- designed us for delight in you. And so uh, use your scripture, use your word to speak, uh, to bring joy and to bring happiness in our lives. Uh, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, So ever since Easter, uh, we've been going through a series called Soul Care, right? Um, And kind of the the idea is that we as a culture tend to really emphasize, uh, you know, we we emphasize mental health, we emphasize uh, physical well-being, we have all sorts of gym memberships and stuff, right? But rarely do we take the time to look at what does it mean to have a healthy soul, right? What do we do to to build that up? you know, it's easy when it comes to like physical things. You can buy a gym membership. You can have a diet. You can go on a mile walk every day, right? But a lot of us have kind of a hazy, vague idea of like what actually makes our soul tick. What actually would be good spiritual health, you might say, right? Um, so we're looking at that in this series. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about joy this week. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to step backwards seven days, right? Uh, and recap what Brian talked about last week. Um, if you're here for that, uh, you might have a little bit of memory. You might remember a little bit. Brian had a big image up on the screen. Uh, he talked about stuff below the surface, above the surface. Anybody remember what that was? Iceberg, Iceberg right. I, uh, I was practicing this with my wife, and she was out of town last week. And so when I practiced this, she said, I don't know what was on the screen. I was like, oh, well, I hope someone remembers. <laughs> so you all did very good. Yeah, so Brian talked about an iceberg, right, and how God's grace works like an iceberg, right? Um, we have to be transformed below the surface before we can have any sort of change above the surface, right? What happens at a spiritual level matters because it's not just about what happens internally, but it begins to spread and affect what's on the outside. Uh, joy works the same way. What lies below the surface really impacts and changes what comes above the surface. And really, that's what the gospel is all about, that transformation of both inside and out, See, before Jesus, we had this problem of a sinful heart, one that was turned away from God, right? We're enemies and rebels to God, living contrary to the purpose he made us for. Uh, But in Christ, we've been radically transformed from bottom to top, right? Everything below surface and above surface has been changed. So much so that the Bible talks about the old self has died and behold, the new person has come, right? This is a totally radical, radical transformation where it's no longer the old Warren that's here. It's someone so new, so different, so transformed, you could rightly call it a brand new Warren. 
but the gospel doesn't just change our hearts. It's not about just this internal transformation. It also reorients the way that we view reality, the way that we think about the world. Think of it like glasses, right? I'm pretty familiar with that. I, some of you in here are as well, right? Before, without glasses, I can see kind of hazily. People in the back, I can't even see you at all, right? Without glasses, I'm kind of guessing at what's there. I'm guessing at the true nature of things. But with glasses, with this reorientation of my vision, I can see Julie all the way in the back. I can wave and say hi, right? Um, before the gospel comes in, the best we can do is guess at what is good. We can guess at who God is. We can guess at the purpose of man. But now that Jesus has come in, now that he's changed our hearts and reoriented our vision, we can see clearly. And that's exactly what Brian said last week, right? Grace comes in and it changes how I view my sin. It changes how I view myself. It changes how I view God and it changes how I view others, right? So picking up on that, what does that have to do with joy? Quite frankly, everything, right? Because when we understand the gospel through these gospel lenses, right, when we understand the world through the lens of the gospel, our hearts abound with joy, right? If that brings us to the main idea, the, the one thing, the, the main idea I want you to take away is this. Life in the abundant grace of the gospel springs up in us abundant joy in God, right? When you're soaked, when you're immersed, when you spend time with the gospel, joy is the natural response. One of the natural responses, right? The gospel causes all sorts of things in us, but joy is one of those things that comes only from spending time soaked in the gospel, right? I like the word springs up in us because it's kind of like a stream, right, or a river. A plant only grows if it has a consistent water source. Joy, right, if we want joy to abound and grow in our lives, think of the gospel like a stream or a spring that runs by it, that feeds and fuels into that plant of joy. So how does this work? Today I want to look at Psalm 16. Uh, it's a really joyful psalm of celebration. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, I would invite you to grab one from the back. Uh, we have Bibles uh, for everyone. Uh, we really think that it's important to read God's Word for yourself. Uh, there's also uh, Psalm 16 in your bulletin, so you can read along with us. Uh, and hopefully this has given the people with Bibles enough time to flip there. <laughs> So for a little bit of context, this particular psalm, Psalm 16, uh, was written by a guy named David, right? Um, during this time, uh, Israel was surrounded by enemies. Pretty much every country around Israel wanted to take it over because it had pretty good land. Uh, and David, it appears, was in some sort of personal danger. And actually, you see that pretty clearly in verse 1. Uh, in verse 1, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So when David's writing this psalm, He's not celebrating his birthday, right? He's not talking about a trip to Disneyland where he felt super joyful, right? Like what inspired David to write this psalm about joy is in the context of fearing for his life. Now, with some of the psalms, biblical scholars can look at that and be like, oh, this was based on this point in David's life when he defeated Goliath, or this particular psalm was based on when David had his first kid. We're not exactly sure when this psalm was written. David had a long life. He had a lot of enemies. This could have been written at any point when his enemies were attacking him. But regardless, we know that this is bad. Like, you don't just pray, preserve me, O God, when you have a bad hair day. You don't pray, preserve me, O God, when your favorite sports team loses. Right? That's a, this, this is a serious prayer, right? This is a cry of a man who's in fear for his very life. But even in the danger, we see David is joyful. 
as we read the rest of the psalm, we don't get this idea that David is crouched down, hiding away in his doomsday bunker, waiting for the worst to come. He has an attitude of joy, right? Even though he's in the valley, even when he's pained, he's still joyful. And he's able to do this because he recognizes joy is an attitude, not an emotion, right? And, and I want to kind of talk through that a little bit. What does it mean to have an attitude versus an emotion? Because I think a lot of times emotions get bad raps, right? Emotions are good. There are God-given internal reflexes. It's how our heart reacts to different moments and situations. They're quick. They're unconscious. They're, they're not good or bad. I mean, they are good, right, because they're God-given, right? It's how we process the world. When the sun peeks through the clouds, you feel happy, right? When your parking spot gets taken at work, you feel angry, right? Th those emotions aren't bad. That's not inherently a bad thing. They're just emotions. It's, when we have those emotions, when we have those reactions, it shows that our internal processing system, it, it's working, right? Think about when you go to a doctor and he, he hammers your knee a little bit, right? Sees if you do a little kick. If you had no reaction to the passing of a loved one, or you had no reaction to getting wrapped up in a big old bear hug by your favorite person, I'd be a little concerned. Like if you just stood there like a stone statue, I'd be worried personally, right? In the same way doctors worried if you don't kick, I'd be worried. But emotions aren't everything. If you choose to act on your anger, you know, I talked about earlier, you feel angry if someone took your parking spot. If you choose to act on that, you decide to bust out his taillight, that's sin, right? That's when the emotion becomes your master. And if the emotion has mastery over you, then it becomes sin. So that's emotion. Attitude is different. Attitude is all about the lens that we interpret the world through. We're going to keep coming back to this lens, right? Attitude is how we interpret what's going on. For example, suppose someone comes up to you and says, hey, nice shirt. All right, we have two different attitude approaches we can take. If you have an insecure attitude, you might be, was, was that sarcastic? Was he messing with me? Is this shirt bad? Should I go change my shirt? Was he, was, he, was he being mean to me, sarcastic, right? Versus if you have a good attitude, you might come across and be like, man, they like my shirt. They think I'm cool, right? It doesn't matter what the guy originally intended, right? Maybe, maybe the guy who said it was being sarcastic. Maybe he was being genuine. That doesn't matter. Based on your attitude, you took away two different interpretations of what happened, right? Attitude is a conscious choice, but unlike emotions, we have more control over what attitude we take. And when I say joy is an attitude, that's exactly what I mean, that we can choose to be joyful in a moment. Look at how David approaches this in verse 8. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I love that word set. Um, in your bulletins, it says the word keep, right? Where you set or where you keep is under your control. Even when danger is looming large and situations arise that can take his eyes off of God, David has set and David has kept the Lord always before him. As Christians, we're not always called to be smiling or giddy, right? When, when the Bible says be joyful or rejoice always, it's not talking about constantly have a smile on your face, smile through the pain, right? Rather, it's God telling us to remember to look at the world the way he views it, right? For example, let's look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Um, Paul says this, We're treated as impostors, yet we are true. We're treated as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet we live, as punished, yet not killed, 
as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul was in prison. He was rejected by men, and he boldly says he can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How can that be? What, what does that mean? I think he explains it well, in, and this is a pretty well-known verse, but Philippians 4, 12 through 13, right? Uh, Paul says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul has that secret, right? He's learned the secret. And that's the secret that all of us have as Christians, as believers, right? Even in hunger, even in sorrow, even in poverty, we echo the words of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Paul gives us an example. He goes beyond theory. He gives us a physical example. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 14, Paul says this, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. Right? So you are grieving, but you don't grieve as those who don't have hope. For we believe that since Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring up those who have fallen asleep. Even in death, perhaps the most sorrowful experience that any Christian, any person can face, Paul says that Christians have hope, a hope that's not shared by the rest of the world, because we have the assurance of a resurrected Christ. Yes, we still mourn, right? We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, right? We mourn, but not like those who have no hope. There is mourning, there is sorrow, but it's a sorrow, and it's a mourning, it's a grieving that's filled with hope and backed up by the promise of joy. See, the, the, the opposite of joy, it's not sadness. The opposite of joy is not sorrow, right? The way that I see it, the opposite of joy is despair, right? Because despair is this attitude of, man, there is no hope. There is no plan. Nothing matters. Joy turns around and says, Christ is my hope. He is in control. He has a reason for doing this. Now, if joy and hope sound very similar, right, you're, you're kind of right. Because the way that I see it, at least, hope is an attitude of expecting God to work for good in the future, and joy is enjoying him today in the present. Hope is like a future tense of looking forward to what God will do in the future, and joy is enjoying his company today, enjoying his presence today. And so joy and hope, I would almost consider them like the two sides of the glasses, right? You have joy as you enjoy today, and hope as you look forward to what he'll do tomorrow. So earlier, you'll remember when I first started talking about attitude, I said we have more control over our attitude and not quite total control. For me, growing up, attitude was very important in my household. If I was grumpy, if I was upset in any way, if I had a bad attitude, my mom would say, you better fix your attitude. And I'd be like crying, stream, tears streaming down my face. I'd be like, okay, okay. If you've ever had somebody tell you, fix your attitude, you know you can't just change, right? It's not in an instant that suddenly your attitude becomes great just because someone told you to fix your attitude. It's kind of like turning a cruise ship, right? You got you to gotta really put in the work early on before it actually finally turns around. It takes a while. And so for me, when I think of attitude, when I think of how to fix attitude, I like to think of a fire, right? Joy is like a fire. We don't start the fire, God starts the fire. But how much we feed it, how much we allow the fire to grow, that is up to us. The joy of the gospel will never go out. And so even if it's just a tiny little flame, 
there will always still be there, right? If we put our hope in the gospel, there will always still be that little flicker of, of joy. But how much we choose to feed it, how much we choose to, to contribute to it and fuel our joy will make the difference between whether in times of danger like David, we have a raging bonfire of joy or whether it's just a tiny little candle flickering in the wind, right? So keep that in mind, the how do you fuel joy? Um, because I like to think of uh, attitude like that fire, right? So looking at Psalm 16, let's look at three different ways that David chose to fuel his joy and maybe we can take away some lessons from that. So the first way that David fueled his joy, the first way that David kept that joy alive, even in times of danger, was by, was by spending time with God, right? We know that spending time with God increases our desire for him. God not only wants us to desire him, he wants to increase our happiness as we enjoy his presence. Now, to some Christians, words like desire and happiness sound kind of scary. They sound kind of not what Christianity is all about, right? Isn't Christianity about putting to death your desires? Isn't Christianity about putting aside what you want, right? And in a certain sense, you are right, and also not really. Um, C.S. Lewis, great Christian thinker, right? Uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he summarized it really well. He said, the New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but self-denial is never an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and take up our cross so that we may follow Jesus. So what does that mean? What's C.S. Lewis saying? I like to think about Jesus' parable, uh, and you might have heard this story. Uh, there's a guy who goes out and he finds a treasure in a field, right? And so with this treasure in the field, he decides, you know what, I'm going to sell everything I have because I want to buy this field so I can have this treasure that's buried underground. So in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy the field and have the treasure that's hidden in the field. Remember, he sold every single possession he had. All that he had was sold. I'm sure he had some really sentimental objects in his, in his house, right? The, the couch that his grandfather built for him, right? Or the rocking chair he had. Um, I'm sure those were hard to get rid of. He had to think long and hard before selling that. And those might have been painful to part with. But in the parable, Jesus tells us, in his joy, right, with great joy, the man went and sold everything he had. In comparison to the great treasure that was in the field, that rickety old rocking chair that he grew up rocking on, right, that was nothing compared to what was in the field, right? It's kind of the same way with us. Where our desire is, what we're desiring, that's where the treasure is, right? So, Look at verse 2. That's exactly what David is saying. He says, I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In this prayer, in this psalm, we see a man who's placed all of his desires in knowing God and being with him. Apart from God, David doesn't consider anything good. One of my favorite hymns is called, Give Me Jesus. You may have heard of it. Um, and the chorus ends by saying, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus right? There's a lot of things in the world that claim that they can fill us up. There's a lot of things in the world that say, I can make you fully happy, fully joyful, fully satisfied. But in the end, we're left empty. They don't satisfy. Our hearts were created to be satisfied only in Jesus. But see, sin is this rebellious thought, this rebellious decision to dethrone God from the center and make other things the focus. That's idolatry, right? making other things to take the place of God that were never meant to be God. 
And so things that could be good, should be good, become harmful if we put them in the wrong places. If any of you are car mechanics or know how cars work, you know that cars have a lot of fluids. You know, you have oil, coolant, windshield wiper fluid, and all those are good. And I would even say all those are very necessary to having a safe car ride. But if you try to put any of those in the gas tank, how, how well is that going to work? In the same way, there's a lot of good things in the world. There's a lot of things that can be necessary to having a happy life, right? Marriage, money, fun, diets, countless other things can be good. But if, if we find our ultimate joy, if we find our ultimate desire, if we try to make those things the fuel that make us run, we're going to be broken down like that car. We're made to desire and worship God, but in our rebellion, we've cast him aside and said, no, I want to find my good in other places. And that's exactly what David says in verse 4. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply, right? Your sorrows multiply as you try to find your happiness, as you find your all in other things. These things, they might make you happy for a moment. They might make you happy for a time being. Or at best, they might just numb the pain of your unhappiness. But the lingering, lasting effects of joy aren't going to be there. We've been raised in a world that idolizes these false sources of happiness. And because we grew up with this mentality of idols, every single one of us, none of us is immune to it. We have this idea that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy, right? That he doesn't know what fun is. We have this idea that Christians are stern, serious people, the kind of people you'd never want to have over for a dinner party, right? But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Look at how David describes God in verse 11, right? We have this idea of this cosmic killjoy, this God who wants to take away all our fun things. And in verse 11, David says, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? God doesn't just have joy in store for us. He has the fullness of joy. He doesn't just have temporary pleasures like the world offers. He has pleasures forevermore, right? Eternal pleasures. There's this one quote from C.S. Lewis that's always really stuck out to me. I'm quoting him twice here, so <laughs> this is the last one, I promise. Uh, he says, Our Lord finds our desires are not too strong, but in fact too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to continue making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. I thought so too, yeah. <laughs> if our desire, if our heart, if our heart's treasure is still set on the old way of life, then you're right. God is going to be no fun. It's going to be miserable to follow him. It's going to be frightening. But when we align ourselves to the new heart that he's given us, he transforms our desires and he bends our will back into a straight shape, back towards him. And when we find our desire in him, when we can say like David, I have no good apart from you, we're able to find satisfaction and pleasure forevermore in his presence. Previously, we scurried away from him. We scurried away from the light like cockroaches, right? Which is a gross analogy, but hear me out. Like a cockroach, when the lights come on, we scurry away. But in Christ, in the gospel, we're transformed into moths, right? We're attracted to the light. We fly to the light. We find joy in the light. The light hasn't changed, right? God doesn't change. 
It's the transformation. It's our desire. It's our attitude towards him that changes. When we desire to simply be in his presence, like David says in verse 11, God promises to satisfy those desires. If our desire is to be with him, he promises to draw near. He promises to never run dry. He promises to never abandon us. When we have hunger and we thirst for him, he promises to fill us up. So how do we do that? How do we learn to desire him and find our satisfaction and our pleasure in him? Simply put, we spend time with him, right? Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night my heart also instructs me. David first receives the counsel of the Lord, right? Which means he's spending time in, his, in the scriptures, right? I almost said the Bible. He didn't have the Bible back then, right? It wasn't all compiled together into one book. He spent time with scripture. How do you receive the counsel of the Lord? You have to spend time in the word of the Lord. And then in the back half, even at night, my heart instructs me. That really reminds me of something else David wrote in Psalm 1. Uh, David said, blessed is the man whose delight is in the word of the Lord. He meditates on them day and night, right? He receives counsel from God, and he also finds, he meditates on it day and night. Now, this word blessed that David uses here, it's not how you and I might think of the word blessed. We, we think fortunate, right? Fortunate is the man who, whose delight is in the word of the Lord. But really, this is an idea of more supremely happy or totally satisfied. Even the word blessed in the Christian scriptures mean totally happy, right? So read it again. Supremely happy and totally satisfied is the man who finds his delight in the word of God as he meditates on it day and night. Have you ever heard the old saying, love takes time, right? I tend to think that's pretty true. If you want to train your heart to love and desire God, to be fully satisfied in him, to find pleasure forevermore at his presence, spend time with him. Read his words that are written to you. Take time to pray and talk with him. The more time we spend with God, the more we'll find our desire for him growing and our satisfaction in him increasing. So that's why spending time with God increases our joy. When we spend time with him, we start to find joy in what really matters rather than the idols that life throws at us. So that was the first way that we can add fuel to the fire, right? That was the first log that David threw on there. The second way that we can add fuel to our joy, the second log that we can throw on the fire, is by surrounding ourselves with the people of God, right? There's another old saying that I really like, show me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. The people that we choose to surround ourselves with impact our attitudes and our thoughts. God knows this, so he intentionally uses community to encourage our hearts and to increase our joy. All the way back in Genesis, when mankind was first made, what did God say when man was alone? It's not good, right? It's not good for man to be alone. If that was true of Adam, who was sinless at that time, so much more for us who are sinful, right? As followers of Christ, we're not intended to be lone rangers. We don't fight it out on our own and tough it out and just try to survive, right? We're called to join in community. Christianity is a team sport, right? It requires the full body of God. So in verse 3, David writes this, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all of my delight. It's interesting to me that in verse 2, David says, I have no good apart from you. Yet in verse 3, the very next verse, he turns around and he says, all of my delight is in the saints of the land. Is that a contradiction? 
not at all. David recognizes that the saints are part of the gift of God, right? When David says, I have no good apart from you, the saints of the land are part of the good that God has given, right? I love how this verse uses the word saints, right? We tend to think of saints as, you know, these super Christians like Saint Peter, Saint Paul, Saint Mary, right? As if there's some sort of Christian gold or Christian plus membership that you have to, to reach before you can get into the country club of saints. But that's not how the Bible talks about it. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul says, Those sanctified in Christ Jesus are called to be saints together with all those who in every place, including Eugene, Oregon, that's part of every place, right? In every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have put their faith in Christ, those who have called upon his name, receive that sanctifying heart transplant and instantly become saints. It's not about a membership class that you get. It's about that heart transformation of being sanctified. There's no JV squad. There's no practice team. If Jesus Christ is our Savior, if he's our Lord, we're part of his grand design for this world. And part of that design, part of the purpose, part of the reason that we're made saints is to join together in community and encourage those who need to increase their joy. We have an obligation to encourage our brothers and sisters who are in trouble, exactly like the saints in the land encouraged David in Psalm 16. I love how David, he knows the steps he has to take, right? In his time of danger, verse 1, he's in danger. Verse 2, he turns to God. And verse 3, he turns to the saints who are in the land to receive encouragement from God through God's church. I love how David also mentions the saints are in the land, right? I think a lot of times we have this idea of saints who... Uh, become hermits, who go live up on the mountain, who separate from society. They're so holy, they're so perfect that they go away, right? And maybe in other religions that's true. Maybe in other religions they have saints who go live in caves, but not in, not in Christianity, right? Jesus himself stepped out of heaven. He stepped out of the isolated place to come into the populated place, to step into the world, to get his hands dirty, and to be among sinners. In the same way, we as saints, we, you, me, everyone here who calls upon the name of Christ is a saint, we as saints are called to live in obedience to him, to get knee-deep in the mud of the world, and to bring that torch of, of the gospel, to bring the gospel light. And that's hard. That's really difficult. That's going to drag you down sometimes, right? But as your flame starts getting low, as you get dragged down, God has promised that his church will come alongside, that your brothers and sisters, those who are surrounding you, who are walking through the muck with you, will be able to provide light. As your torch starts dying out, they can lend over and say, here, brother, let me light that torch for you. All that being said, right, that's, that's what things should be. I don't want to create a false reality, right? I don't want to pretend that the church is perfect, either globally or locally, right? The church isn't perfect. It's still made up of broken human beings trying to follow Christ. But God has promised that there is going to be good from spending time with the church. Even in the brokenness, even in this isn't perfect, it's still not good for us to be alone. The church is imperfect, that's true, and we have this goal, we have this ideal of walking through the muck together, right? Sometimes we fall down, sometimes we're more muck than we are human, right? Um, that's the ideal, that's the goal we're searching for. Even in the imperfection, that's still better than doing life alone, right? Even from the beginning, when Adam had no sin, it was still not good for him to be alone. In James chapter 117, uh, we're promised that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of all light, right? The gift of fellowship, the gift of community, the gift of the church is meant for our good. 
It's meant to be enjoyed together, even in the imperfection. So I want to challenge you to move away from the theoretical, move away from, man, that was a good word that, that Warren brought today, and move into the practical, right? It's easy to say the church should be a place of love, but not serve. It's easy to put on your Sunday morning mask, to pretend that everything's good, pretend there's no problems at home or at work, and not open up about the places where you need help, right? I like to think of it like some of us have paper, paper mache torches, right? No one knows that that's a fake flame. No one knows that that's fake hope, that's fake joy, and that really you need someone to light your torch. You can't receive encouragement. You can't receive help. You can't receive the community of the church unless you're honest, unless you say, hey, guys, my torch is running low. I could really use someone to come help me out. And at that point, that's when brothers and sisters can begin to encourage you and begin to help you relight that torch. The church is God's chosen vessel. The church are God's ambassadors. They're God's way of moving in this world today uh, because his Holy Spirit fills us. And if his Holy Spirit fills us, and his Holy Spirit moves us, and we become his ambassadors. And so God's way of increasing our joy is by working through his church, is by moving through his people to bring fuel to your flame. The final fuel for David's flame of joy, right? The final fuel that David has is remembering the gospel and allowing it to shape his hope, right? In verses 10 through 11, David writes, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or hell or the realm of the dead. Um, you will not abandon my soul or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remember earlier uh, how we said hope is the future tense of joy, right? Joy is the present tense. Hope is the future tense. This is what I'm talking about right here. The gospel provides for us a transcendent view of reality, right? We're able to step back and see the big picture, right? The gospel isn't stuck in one moment. The gospel steps back and looks across the whole span of space and time, right? This is, oh, I went out. <laughs> Am I back? Can you all hear me in the back? Great. The gospel provides a transcendent view of reality, right? And this isn't because the human authors who wrote scripture are really smart or spend a lot of time thinking about it. This is because the God who wrote the gospel sees the entire timeline. From the end to the beginning, he sees it all, right? David is able to rely on the victory that God has already won. David has confidence. David says, you're not going to abandon me to hell. You're going to save me, right? Even though things look bad at this moment, at this particular point in the timeline, David steps back and is able to see it all because of what God has done. David knew that it wasn't about people or good works or what we can do, right? I mean, let's look at David. He had a fair share of sin in his own life, right? He lied, he murdered, he committed adultery. It wasn't theoretical for him, right? When David talks about all this, it's not a theory for him. It's personal. It's real. It's what he's actually experienced, right? It's not about man and what we can do to save ourselves from hell, to save ourselves from Sheol, like David says, right? I think as human beings, we come up with all sorts of trades and exchange rates, right? We're like, oh man, I cursed today, so I need to pray five times to make up for it. Or, oh, I shoplifted at Target, so I need to call my mom and tell her how much I love her, as if that'll make things better. You know, people come up with all sorts of exchange rates, and especially the older you get, I'm sure you've seen it more and more in the world. But that God thinks that's silly, right? Just as you guys laugh, God laughs in the same way. In Job chapter 41, God says this, who has given first to me that I should repay him? 
whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Or if we're putting in the Warren Davy translation, how I would explain that, God is saying, so I made the whole earth. I made the sun that keeps your world in orbit. I made the gravity that holds you to the ground. I made every molecule in your body. And you think that giving a dollar to a homeless man is going to make me owe you heaven? It doesn't work, right? If the bottom part of the iceberg is corrupt, if the bottom part of the iceberg is still suffering under sin, it doesn't matter what you do to the top part to make it look more pretty. Or to use Jesus' example, it's like trying to whitewash a tomb. Now, I grew up in Louisiana, right? Uh, there, we flood a lot. It's kind of like the, one of the only two things we're known for, good seafood, and we have a lot of fish in our street sometimes, right? Maybe that's why we have good seafood. <laughs> It floods a lot, and that means that the water table under the ground, right, below the surface, is really high. So you even pour like a little bit of water, and all of a sudden that water table rises up above the streets, which means we have an interesting way of burying dead people. Because if you just take a wooden coffin, you dig six feet in the ground, put it there, cover it up, next flood that comes, your Uncle Bob is going to be floating through the street. It happens, right? Very quickly we learned burying dead people in Louisiana doesn't work. So we have started building stone mausoleums, right? These above-ground stone things that no matter how much the water level rises, that stone is heavy. That's going to stay there. They look like little castles, which is exactly what my sister thought. Every time we drive by graveyards in Louisiana, my sister would be like, Mom, can we stop and see the princesses who live in the castles? <laughs> Every graveyard we drove by, she was convinced that was the princesses from Disney living in those little miniature castles, right? I don't think she would have liked what was actually living inside. <laughs> so when I think of that, those are the tombs that I think of Jesus describing, those above-ground mausoleums. You can paint that all you want. You can add as much pretty outside shimmer to it as you want. You can paint, paint little pretty flowers. You can add spires to it and actually make it look like a princess castle. But at the end of the day, no matter what you do to the outside, no matter how much you change it, the inside, what's on the inside actually matters. And if on the inside is a, a rotting corpse, that's not going to be good, right? That's not going to impress God. But see, that's the beauty of the gospel, and that's exactly where grace comes in, where David finds his hope and his joy and security in God. In our human nature, we have an old, sinful, corrupted heart, right, that, that corpse on the inside of the mausoleum, and our desires, what we love, what we treasure, is twisted and turned away from God. But in his grace, you know, David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you will not abandon my whole soul to hell. In, in his grace, even though we don't deserve it, it's God's unmerited favor. He steps in, and he cleans out the inside of the tomb. He brings to life that old, dead person. God does what we couldn't do for ourselves. We could never crawl out of the pit. We could never crawl out of the hole. But God doesn't abandon us there. He does something. And he did this by coming down in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a life that we could never live without sin. He absorbed all the punishment that we deserved for our rebellion by dying on the cross right? And he resurrected the new life, which is exactly what we celebrated at Easter two weeks ago. In Acts chapter 2, it's really cool. I'm not the first person to do a commentary on Psalm 16. Uh, Peter actually had a really early one, right? Uh, Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, the people who followed Jesus really closely. Um, in Acts chapter 2, Peter points out, David died a long time ago. David has long been dead, and so these verses here at the end, you know, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, that couldn't be describing David, right? That's not about David. Peter points out that David is a prophet, 
So David is looking forward to the coming Messiah. David is looking forward to the future king, Jesus, who would rise from the grave, who wouldn't suffer corruption, and would offer to us eternal life. Right here, this promise of new life and resurrection with the Messiah is the beautiful inheritance that David talks about in verse 6. It's the hope that allows him to dwell in security in verse 9. It's the path of life that leads to fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore in verse 11. So when you're feeling despair creeping in, when you feel like the fuel to your fire is running low, remind yourself of the great joy and the great hope that God offers through the gospel. A lot of times, especially the longer that we have time to enjoy the gospel, the longer we have time to be Christians, we forget just how good and how sweet the gospel message is. So it's good for us to remind ourselves, whether it's by taking time in God's word, right, that connects, or whether it's by taking time with God's people who also enjoy the, the gospel, that also connects, right? When we remind ourselves of the gospel, it's like taking off our glasses and wiping them off a little bit, getting the grime off there. Sometimes some muck can get on there and putting them back on and seeing the world clearly for the joy that God has intended. And when we see the world through the biblical lens of God, there can joy and there can hope begin to abound. So we at Harvest like to end uh, in two ways, uh, with two different prayers. Um, one, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't uh, received that heart transplant, that heart transformation, if you're not viewing the world through the lens that God intended, you can take that chance. You can take that opportunity to do that now. Um, and I'll lead a prayer, and you can pray along with me uh, silently in your seat, and maybe pray something like this. King Jesus, I recognize that what's beneath the surface, the surface, I recognize that what's in the tomb is dead, is warped away from you. God, I don't want that anymore. God, remove my old heart of sin and give me the new resurrection life that you promise. God, I believe and I put my full faith in the fact that I can't save myself. I can't crawl my way out of the pit, but you haven't abandoned me there. You haven't left me there to crawl my way out. You, in fact, came. You died on the cross. You took away my sin, and you raised to life and give me new life. God, give me the joy and hope of the gospel to start following you and find my joy and my desire in you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would love to talk with you. I'll be standing at the back after service. Uh, maybe you can tell somebody that you came in with, uh, but it'd be great to just tell someone, share that joy, right? Part of the joy of Christian life is being in community, is being in fellowship. And so don't keep that secret. Don't keep that, that lamp hidden under a basket. Share it and tell it with everybody. For those of you who are already believers, and when I say already, I mean even if you became one five seconds ago, uh, we also like to pray a prayer of discipleship, a prayer of committing to follow, right? And so if uh, today what we read from Psalm 16 stuck out to you uh, and you'd like to follow Christ in that, maybe pray something like this. Uh, King Jesus, sometimes it's easy for me to forget the perspective of the gospel. Sometimes it's easy for me to let despair creep in. It's easy for me to lose my hope and to lose my joy. God, reorient my vision. Reorient the desires of my heart. Teach me to find pleasure forevermore at your right hand. Teach me to find the fullness of joy in your presence. God, may my desire for you outweigh any idol, any good thing in this world, so that my focus is entirely on you. God, thank you so much for everything you've done for me. Thank you for transforming me below the surface and above the surface. And let me be faithful 
Let me meet my obligation to be a saint in the land, to encourage my brothers and sisters, and to help them where they may be struggling. God, show me one opportunity, show me one way this week that I can bring joy to someone around me. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.